Cheap oil prices could wreak havoc on the automotive industry's efforts to meet the fuel economy goal of 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025. That's why I recently sat down with Chris Grundler, the director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, to get his views on this issue. And then later in the show, I'll talk with Alberto Ayala, the Deputy Executive Officer of the California Air Resources Board, to get his views as well. The CARB, as it's called, has an outsized influence on what's going to happen. But first, let's hear from Chris Grundler at the EPA. Chris, one of the big things that all automakers are talking about right now is the midterm review of the corporate average fuel economy legislation that's out there. This review, of course, is to see, is the industry on track? Is all this doable? My question to you is, you're running all this from the EPA standpoint. What's your assessment right now as you go into these talks? First, um, your listeners should know that uh, this midterm evaluation is a regulatory commitment. It's not just a promise. So we are doing this. Um, but it's narrowly focused on the 2022 through 2025 model year. Uh, this was very important part of um, the agreement with the automakers in 2012 because we are going so far out. You know, they wanted a checkpoint to see if the technical analysis that we did to support the decisions in 2012 um, still was true. And so essentially everything is on the table costs, effectiveness, uh, economic issues, consumer acceptance, uh, affordability. Uh, we are collecting information on the latest engine and powertrain technologies. Uh, we are updating our vehicle simulation modeling, our, our, our cost and feasibility models. We're doing new work uh, on, on estimating costs, uh, building on the work we did in 2012. We're tearing down different kinds of vehicles to estimate you know, piece by piece costs uh, using a very reputable firm that does the same work for the automakers. Uh, so we are we're putting as much effort, if not more, into this midterm valuation uh, than, uh, than we put into developing the record, the technical record for the standards. How's it's your, a big deal. How, how does your early assessment back in 2012 hold mm -hmm. up now, several years later? It's, it's holding up remarkably well. We had predicted in 2012 that um, the gasoline engines would continue to, to dominate uh, the compliance pathway. Uh, we predicted that more multi-speed transmissions would be entering the market. We predicted that there'd be more turbo charging and downsized engines, and so far uh, our estimates uh, are holding true. Um, in some cases, uh, the market is, is, is picking up this technology in rates faster than, than we predicted. Uh, in some cases, their technology is coming into the marketplace, or is about to, that we hadn't even considered. Nine, such, as? such as nine and ten speed transmissions. You know, who knew? Um, the, uh, the high compression naturally aspirated engines that Mazda has developed was not part of our, our calculation. So we're keeping a very close eye on, um, on what's happening in the market, uh, on, uh, on what new technology is, is emerging, and we have a lot of information sources. We, we have confidential briefings from the manufacturers. We're doing uh, a lot of benchmarking in our Ann Arbor lab of the latest uh, developments, all to inform this very important decision that will be made by April 2018. Much of what was written back then <clears throat> made the assumption that gasoline prices were going to be far higher than they are today. And so the fuel that you saved could help pay for that technology. 
now that we've got unbelievably low prices, and it looks like it's going to be low for some years to come, are you reassessing that? Well, the way the gas prices um, enter into it is, as, as you point out, in, in calculating the benefits and the payback period to consumers. In 2012, I th we estimated an out-year price of fuel in like the 350, which is obviously quite a bit higher than today. But we also, we didn't predict $4 and $5 gasoline uh, last year. So it's not clear how that's going to impact the overall, overall costs and benefits. Uh, but I do want your listeners to know that um, if the vehicle mix shifts dramatically to larger vehicles or more trucks than we had predicted, uh, that does not present a compliance problem for the manufacturers because of the way we design these, these standards. So each manufacturer gets essentially their own standard based on the product mix that they sell. So low gasoline prices won't affect whether or not automakers can comply with these standards. They will affect the economics and the overall costs and, and, and benefits. But uh, again, so far, um, so good. I would, I would say that uh, consumers are choosing these, these technologies now in numbers that matter. They continue to choose them even though gas prices are down. They continue to say fuel economy matters in their purchase decision. Uh, I think it was Mark Fields who said last year that consumers are a lot smarter now and they know gasoline goes up and they know, they know it goes down and I think they're hedging their bets and that's what this great new technology allows them to do. What about consumer acceptance, though, in some of the new technologies, electrification? And I ask that because hybrid sales are really going down fast. Plug-in sales never even caught on. EVs are growing pretty good, but mm -hmm. the numbers are still small. Even as of very late now, diesel sales are starting to go down. Do these yeah. technologies play a critical role in automakers being able to meet the standard, or can they still meet it even if these things aren't catching on? Because Consumers just are not buying them in the numbers that yeah. the automakers expected. I do think that's that's a function of fuel price. Uh, but it, when, when we did our technology pathway estimates, which we're required to do under the law, we have to show a feasible compliance pathway. And this is why we developed these sophisticated cost uh, effectiveness models. Um, what, what that modeling told us, and, and so far it's, it's bearing out, is that the most likely compliance path is through advanced gasoline engines, mass reductions, improved aero, improved tire rolling resistance, uh, improved combustion, turbocharged downsized engines. Uh, our estimate in 2025 of what the EV and strong hybrid market is very not much different than what they, they comprise the market of today. I think uh, plug-ins and battery electric vehicles, we estimated at 2% in 2025 and strong hybrids 5%. That's a long answer to your question. A short answer would be no. They do not play an important part in achieving the 2025 standards based on what we learned, what we know in 2025, what we, in 2012. What we've learned since then um, uh, has kind of affirmed our, our estimate. What we're seeing in the marketplace, what we're seeing in terms of rapid uptake of multi-speed transmissions, of uh, turbo downsize engines, gasoline direct injection, is, is all consistent with what we predicted. And the National Academy of Sciences just came out with a report which essentially affirms you know, our judgment that advanced gasoline technologies combined with mass reduction and better transmissions will be the dominant technologies in 2025. That's not to say that EPA is indifferent to 
hybrid sales and, and battery electric vehicle sales and, and fuel sales. We think those technologies will be crucial for the long term. But for the, for the period between now and 2025, uh, they're not going to make or break uh, that program. You mentioned an interesting thing that even if the market shifts, and we're seeing a shift right now, mm -hmm. trucks, you know, and trucks, the truck category is very broad. It's not just pickups, as right. you well know. Crossover, that whole segment is exploding. I've never seen such a shift in my entire career to that. But you're saying that that's not going to hurt the automakers and meeting cafe. Can you give us a quick answer to what's changed? Because in the old cafe rules, it was a blend of everything, wasn't it? And if they sold more trucks, it would hurt them. Now you're saying right. it does not. What's the difference? We, we have separate truck and, and, and car vehicle curves, which are based on footprint. Uh, automakers can trade uh, between them. Uh, and so if vehicle shifts and consumer preferences change, uh, it doesn't hurt them. So their, their standard is really based on what they choose to sell and what they do sell. And they don't need to make up with you know, a lot of small car sales if they sell a lot of trucks. And, and that's the key difference between CAFE and, and the Clean Air Act approach. We have these additional flexibilities that will um, uh, allow for consumer choice. And that was very important to us. You know, we did not want uh, to be telling people you know, what to buy. Uh, our policy preference uh, and the design was that all segments get better over time uh, and the marketplace will sort out what, what those preferences are, but everyone is going to get better. And to me, that's progress. You mentioned the, the Clean Air Act, and you know there, there's the CO2 component of it, and then even uh, California with its regulations. How do you square all that with the, the CAFE regulations? Uh, it seems to it me... It took a lot of effort. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. It uh, took a lot of effort, but, uh, but we are harmonized between um, uh, NHTSA and, and EPA despite differences in legal authority, so that manufacturers can build and sell one car. Um, California has adopted our standards, with one exception. They still have a separate ZEV program, which we think is important, by the way. Uh, but by and large, manufacturers can sell the same vehicle in all 50 states. They have a, an additional obligation in California to, uh, to sell uh, vehicles that qualify for the, for the ZEV rules. Um, so uh, that's separate, but it's always been separate, and it was separate when we adopted this, uh, this national program. You know, I happen to believe in um, kind of the idea of California as an incubator of, of great ideas and, and new technology. They're, they do have a unique marketplace, um, and, and we're seeing that uh, develop. There's been talk, too, of decarbonizing both gasoline and diesel fuel. And I yes. think that might even be part of the, the whole mix that EPA is looking at. Where do we stand with that? Absolutely. So I've commissioned what I call kind of some futures work in our organization, kind of think beyond the horizon. You know, what, what, what needs to happen in this sector, in the transportation sector, uh, over time to achieve what science is telling us we need to achieve to avert the, the worst impacts of a changing climate. Uh, <coughs> And, and this is not a big revelation, but uh, you can't simply you know, regulate vehicles um, and you can't simply regulate fuels. Um, those t two strategies are very important, but they, they won't get you what, 
what you need. We have to look at the entire system of how we move people and goods around the planet and make that more efficient through better logistics and, and incentives. Uh, so we need to continue progress in all three of those areas. We need you know, way more low carbon fuels than kind of current legislation calls for. And that's been challenging. Even though the United States has has produced and consumed more renewable fuel than any other nation on earth combined, uh, it's not going to be enough to achieve what we need to achieve you know, in the 2050 time frame. We need breakthroughs there. We need breakthroughs in the, in the second generation um, fuels. Uh, we need drop-in fuels, renewable diesel, renewable gasoline. Um, and we need to optimize these low carbon fuels with, with future engine technologies. You know, and we're going to need a lot more electrification. Uh, so it's, it's a very exciting time. <laughs> and things are changing so, so fast. I mean, David Cole refers to this time as fast and furious. Um, I hope it's not too furious. Uh, but I, I'm at EPA, so I'm used to people being furious with us. Uh, but it's really exciting time to be an engineer in this, in this business, uh, to try to puzzle out what future customers want, what future customers' uh, relationship with the automobile is. I don't know if you've covered this, but it's really fascinating, the changing demographics. We've got you know, older Americans moving back into the cities. Uh, we've got um, you know, younger Americans looking at cars as just um, uh, an appliance as opposed to a form of self-expression, like what we grew up with. So it's going to be interesting to see how all these things sort out going to be fascinating. It will Chris be. Grundler, thanks for your time. Thank you. California has an inordinate influence on regulating automotive emissions. That's because the state enacted tailpipe emission regulations in 1966, before the federal government did it in 1968. And even the Supreme Court has ruled that, because of that, California can continue to enact its own emission regulations. The California Air Resources Board is the agency tasked with writing those regulations, and Alberto Ayala is the deputy executive officer of the CARB. I recently talked with him to get an update of how their efforts are going. Alberto, the California Air Resources Board has put out all kinds of regulations that industry is meeting right now or trying to meet. But are you really finding any benefits from it? I mean, can you point to things where you can say, yeah, definitely we're making a difference here? Well, um, absolutely, we're finding benefits. But I think the first thing that I would clarify is um, we have a multi-pronged approach. Yes, we are a regulatory body. So uh, one of our core missions is to develop policies. And many of those policies are command and control regulations. However, what you should also note is um, many of our programs and perhaps some of our most successful programs are not regulations. We spend a lot of time and energy and frankly money on our incentive programs and incentives are a key piece of our portfolio and they go hand in hand in a very complementary way with our regulations because Thanks to our incentive programs, we can actually promote the clean technology that we're seeking to achieve with our regulations. We can actually create and promote new markets. We can actually uh, signal to industry the kinds of technologies and fuels that California needs to meet our 
uh, clean air and climate goals. So yes, regulations are working, but so are our incentive programs. And I think when you put them together, I think what you get is the very successful program we have. And we have a number of examples that I think we can point to. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that, take my favorite subject, zero emission vehicles. The NAS uh, recently uh, released a very important report and is, is the first uh, a document that has actually pointed to the benefit of the zero emission vehicle mandate that California has put in place for 25 years around the world. Mm -hmm. Our policy has, has led to development, promotion, and deployment of technology, not only in California, but in the U.S. and around the world. So again, that's just one uh, simple example where we believe that the leadership role that we've taken is really making a difference, not only in California, which is obviously our most important priority, but also in other places. Can you give me some examples, automotive examples, of the incentives that you're talking about? Well, the, again, the, 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 the best example, obviously, is our rebates program for zero emission vehicles. In California, we've, uh, we've uh, shown that rebates for a potential ZEP buyer are very important. And we are fortunate that we have the funding, we're investing our cap and trade program proceeds in what we call our low carbon transportation strategies, taking some of those proceeds and actually supporting the deployment of zero emission vehicles, both battery electric vehicles as well as fuel cell electrics. So um, demand is high, demand is growing, and you see, it, you see that on our roads. I mean, um, you know, you drive around LA and the most popular car is, you know, some of the zero emission vehicles. And, and obviously, uh, we cannot forget Tesla. Right. So, uh, what's the amount of money that you can get by buying one of these zero emission vehicles? So, to, to make it simple, the, the, uh, the program that is currently in place that the board just recently approved is um, if you buy a zero emission vehicle like a LEAF or a, a Tesla or, or a battery electric uh, zero emission vehicle, uh, as a consumer you, you can get $2,500 from the state. Mm -hmm. And that can be added to uh, potentially other federal and even local incentives. If you buy a fuel cell electric, uh, you get $5,000. And again, the reason for that is simple because fuel cell electrics, while they're here and they are uh, real, uh, they are earlier in the market development. So we essentially want to promote them and support them. And the most important thing is, um, California is investing very heavily in the fueling infrastructure that fuel cell electrics are going to need. And uh, we are confident that we are going to get to the 100 stations that we need to essentially uh, develop a self-sustaining market. With the fuel cells, how does it work? Because you can't buy one, you can only lease one. So does the automaker get that $5,000 or does the individual getting the car? The individual. Oh, that no kidding, even though they're the leasing it. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. The same applies to battery electrics. Mm -hmm. You can lease a battery electric car. Uh, this is meant to really uh, aid the consumer. And what we're talking about here is a true transformation. And uh, so what we need to do is not to convince the automakers, uh, regulations are effective at doing that, what we need to do is really change the mindset of the typical California consumer mm -hmm. that zero emission vehicles are a no compromise alternative to fossil fuel combustion. 
there's been talk too that, hey, wait a minute, you know, the average Tesla Model S goes for $100,000. Why are we subsidizing people buying luxury cars? Yeah. No, and that's a fair question. And, and again, some of our uh, legislative leaders are very engaged in that question. And in fact, uh, we are now rolling out programs that are meant to focus specifically on ZEV adoption for lower income people, where mm -hmm. we are actually scaling the rebate uh, based on income. From an air quality and climate perspective, any ZEV by anybody is a good thing, right? Because you're growing the market, you are promoting technology, you're essentially eliminating emissions that otherwise, you know, impact our environment. But um, obviously we are sensitive to the fact that, uh, and we are uh, very keen on um, the understanding that our policies need to help everyone in California, not just uh, high income folks. And again, uh, part of our investments are strictly geared towards um, disadvantaged communities, towards lower income folks, because again, the technology is real. But you would think that the disadvantaged or low income simply are not going to be able to buy a new car anyway, whether it's an, an advanced technology one or just a regular one. And again, here's an example of how uh, our policy is responsive and nimble. Um, we are expanding our program so that you can also um, include used cars. And again, we've had great examples, and many of them have been in the press. So if you bought a used Nissan Leaf, for example, for example you can still get exactly. the, the, the full amount. We have, we have programs that actually go above and beyond the full amount. So this is really a portfolio approach, what we're trying to do. And mm -hmm. again, we're trying to change uh, the landscape. Uh, and we get that for ZEVs to work, they need to work for everybody. And California now has in place programs that are actually trying to tackle that issue. And again, we have examples in the press uh, that I invite you to look at to see uh, firsthand who are some of the folks that are actually uh, able to get behind the wheel of these advanced technologies. Mm -hmm. There's been controversy over how the CARB awards ZEV credits to manufacturers. Sure. In, yeah, and you know the specifics of the, the battery swapping scheme yeah. with Tesla specifically that no one's been able to find examples of the battery swapping actually taking place. And mm. just so the audience knows, if you can swap batteries, you can get more ZEV credits, and in Tesla's case, they can even turn around and sell them. Yeah. But, but I'd, I'd like to hear from you, where does that, that whole policy stand? Because uh, it looks like Tesla's been getting a lot of money from the state of California, and yet when you ask everyday Tesla owners, nobody has heard of or seen any of these batteries actually getting swapped. Sure. So um, let, let me address the, the point about the credits uh, because uh, it is true. Um, the policy got overly complex. Um, uh, I think uh, too convoluted to, to really uh, serve a, a, a purpose. So what the board has done is uh, they've adopted a revision to the regulation. And, and this is important because starting in model year 2018, all that goes away and the credit is solely and purely based on range. So whether it's a battery, whether it's a fuel cell, whether it's whatever else, range will determine the credit that a specific vehicle receives. Mm -hmm. So any of the complexities and the issues with the credit, um, you know, we, we get it. The, ch the policy has been, has been revised and it all goes away in model year uh, 2018. Now back to the, to the battery swap. Um, I think it's commendable that Tesla actually figure out a technology solution because um, 
you know, they, they basically saw a need to offer convenience to their customers. Um, we believe that refueling has to be quick and convenient to the consumer, right? I mean, we should not be asking the consumer to do things differently with an advanced zero emission vehicle as they do with their current vehicle. And certainly, um, the fast refueling provision was uh, intended for the fuel cell electric vehicle, right? Because it matches the fueling experience of a normal car. Again, it's commendable that Tesla uh, was able to put forth a very viable technological solution. Um, I was fortunate to be invited when um, Tesla rolled out the, the swap mechanism in, in Los Angeles, and, and it works, it's fantastic, I mean, it's real. Uh, and again, you'll have to talk to Tesla to get specifics in terms of who in their customer base is actually swapping. But, you know, they have a station in California, and, mm -hmm. and my understanding is they are uh, building more. To us, is, is, it's a viable solution, and the regulation is currently structured that Tesla can, can approach us and provide the evidence uh, to get the credit. Um, our board has been actually very engaged in this, in this issue. But in principle, if you can swap a battery and you can do it twice as fast as, as what you need to refuel a, a conventional car, I think that's something that, that, that should and, and can be promoted. Does range hurt the strategy if you're basing all the credits on range and the longer yeah. the range, you know, you get the credits? Because some people have talked about having just little city commuter EVs yeah. with smaller battery packs and you can take a lot of cost out if you say you're only going to have 80 miles of range right. rather than 300. Yeah. Well, again, you know, it's, it's, it, we're taking the lessons learned from the past. And, you know, in the past, we had the, uh, the NEVs, the neighborhood electric vehicles, that, again, it was industry that kind of decided to go away from them. Mm -hmm. If we truly come back to this concept of urban mobility, where people are going to have a small cars for the city and then other cars, um, again, I think the policy is one that uh, we can take a look again. Our understanding from industry, and certainly where we're going with uh, electric uh, vehicles, both batteries and fuel cells, is uh, range is, is the best indicator where the credit should be, and the more range you put into a battery or a fuel cell, the better off you'll be. Okay, last question. I need a quick answer. We're down to the end here. Is the air getting cleaner in California? Absolutely. So Without you're seeing a, a difference. Absolutely, and we have the data to back it up. And most importantly, the citizens of California see the difference. Cool. David Ayala, thank, Alberto Ayala, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine this week. We truly like bringing you first-hand accounts from the people who are shaping the automotive industry.